چطفه تراشگه From Edmonton, Alberta, that was Millennia from their third CD, Bratia, which means brothers, and Oikume, a song about godparents. And uh, I think I'll always, in my mind, uh, relate that song to the Vesna Ukrainian dancers uh, performing a Ukrainian line dance, original choreography, such talent uh, we have right here on our doorstep. Up next, the Kubasonics, also from Edmonton, and this is from their CD, Giants of the Prairies. An original composition brought by uh, Brian Cherwick, and uh, it is a song about how kishka is made. And I don't think you'll get kishka at the bazaar on Sunday. Not very many people really eat it anymore, but at one time it was quite the delicacy, and it is known in English as blood sausage. Here is Brian Cherwick with a story of kishka. got my little red wagon going down the lane to Steve and Mary's I gotta visit them again Steve worked at the Packers and when his boss wasn't looking he'd sneak us out a gallon of pig's blood I pulled it home on my wagon being careful how I stopped I wouldn't dare tip it over I couldn't spill a precious drop When I got home to the kitchen I found my mama cooking buckwheat Making kishka Out of that pig's blood Kishka Ukrainian treat Kishka masquerading as a meat Kishka 
Kubanski kazači hor i pisnja Tam šla dva brata. 
And that was the Kuban Cossack Choir with a song called There Went Two Brothers. Earlier you heard Kalena from Winnipeg and from their CD Seam or Seven. That was Who Stole the Kishka. This is Stefan Andrusiak from Rushnechok, and you're listening to Nash Holos with host Paulette McQuarrie. Дорогі слухачі, від всіх наших членів оркестри Рушничок, великий привіт вам. Ви слухаєте радіопередачу Наш голос. The Crimean War, 1853-1856, aligned France, Sardinia, Turkey, and Britain against Russia. That war was 160 years ago. Russia would lose, but not without the British paying a heavy human price. Today, balaclava-covered faces on Russian fighters have pushed their way into legislative buildings in Crimea and pushed their way through a referendum at gunpoint. Now, they are taking over police stations on the soil of East Ukraine. Alfred Lloyd Tennyson wrote his famous poem about a disastrous British defeat that took place in 1854, and a chill hits me today when I recall that the charge of the Light Brigade took place near the town of Balaklava. Flashed all their sabers bare, flashed as they turned in air, sabering the gunners there, charging an army while all the world wondered. A year later, the British would win a key battle that would turn the tide in the Crimean War. Pride and relief were felt throughout the British Empire. One town near Kingston, Ontario, would change its name forever. Mill Creek would become Odessa. Some days are darker than others, and there is no sun. Flags flutter, some because they've been torn from their moorings, torn from their masts as they float to the ground. So get up. Let's go. Truth is on our side. My heart strains for sunlight. My heart struggles for liberty. From Rushnichok, Volume 5, Yaksonses Aslonit, When Clouds Hide the Sun. Radio Predaciu Nash Holos Radio Krinskoho Korinya Kotrapodetsivam Nachvali CHLY Oden Nul Oden Sim FM Umisti Nanaimo Hovorit Pavlina You're listening to Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio on CHLY 101.7 FM in beautiful downtown Nanaimo I'm your host Pavlina The following two commentaries originally aired on Nash Holos back in December of 2014 and unfortunately still apply today. This is Volodymyr Valkov at the American-Ukrainian Bureau for Human Rights and the Fina Petrakova 
Scientific Center for Judaica and Jewish Art in Lviv, Ukraine. Today I would like to talk about some of the possible implications of Putin's intervention into Crimea. There will be many costs to Putin's regime as a result of Russian intervention into Crimea. First of all, Russia can no longer be considered a reliable partner. From now on, Ukraine will be particularly distrustful of Russia as a neighbor. The anxiety in the hearts of the vast majority of Ukrainians, especially the younger generation, will be there to stay for decades to come. This will leave a huge dent in the Soviet doctrine of brotherly connection between Russia and Ukraine and in the modern Russian doctrine of common Slavic values. Another fallout emanating from the forceful occupation of Crimea can be the weakening of the foundation of the international system, because the failure to enforce the 1994 Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances will signify that the solemn guarantees given by the great powers carry little value in practice. If Russia fully annexes and cements its control over the parts of the Ukrainian territory, including Crimea, the international system of strategic checks and balances will fall apart. We won't have to wait for a very long time before various rogue and authoritarian states will create their respective justifications to, for example, acquire nuclear weapons or annex certain territories. The invasion of Crimea by the Russian Federation has already consolidated the Ukrainian society. Moreover, the concept of what constitutes the Ukrainian identity has started to become much more inclusive. Thanks to the emphasis that Russia is trying so hard to put on the existence of a threat to the Russian language and culture in Ukraine, the overwhelming numbers of Ukrainians began speaking publicly about their support for the shared concept of Ukrainian identity that includes all national minorities living in Ukraine. This will further solidify the Ukrainian society. At the same time, the current concept of national identity in the Russian Federation is becoming increasingly exclusive. Putin's Crimean affair will also considerably precipitate Ukraine's integration with Western democratic institutions such as NATO and the European Union. Ukraine will need to join those institutions in order to ensure its complete withdrawal from the Russian sphere of influence. Back in 2008, around 40% of the population of Ukraine viewed NATO as a threat. Some of the most credible polls back then confirmed this view. Since Russian incursion into Crimea, there hasn't yet been a formal survey of public opinion regarding Ukraine's accession to NATO, but several largest media outlets, including Unian and TSN, recently conducted online surveys. The results are striking. Between 70 to 79% support the move to join NATO and about 62% support accession to the EU. This stands in contrast to the 2010 survey that showed 51% of the population in favor of the EU. If some parts of the Ukrainian population, especially the communists, or those who strongly identify with the Soviet nostalgia, will continue to fiercely oppose it, Ukraine will have to work hard on building a capable military of its own. But in a globalized world, and under the circumstances of limited financial means, 
the likely choice will be in favor of collective security. The world has been shocked by the blatant and unprovoked aggression of the Russian Federation against Ukraine. Russia's effective occupation of the Crimean Peninsula has ushered in a new geopolitical reality in Europe. In this new reality, no country can be completely safe. Can such exclaves of Russian influence as Crimea or Transnistria be considered neutral to the national security interests of the other European states? If Ukraine becomes a prosperous state, this will provide Europe with a possible antidote to the Transnistria-like problems and Russia's imperial ambitions in general. A successful and independent Ukrainian state will serve as a convincing evidence that democracy works. This will encourage other breakaway regions in the Russian sphere of influence to reintegrate with their original homelands or at least to step out of the Russian backyard. What good is there really for Putin in making Ukraine an ever more corrupt or even failed state? Wouldn't Ukraine as a successful trading partner be more profitable even for Russia? Soviet Union brought Chernobyl to Ukraine. What will Putin's Russia bring? On the other hand, can Putin help create a successful Crimea? In fact, he is neither interested in nor capable of bringing prosperity to the peninsula soon after Crimea becomes a Russian satellite similar to Transnistria, disenchantment of the local residents and perhaps even insurgency led by the Crimean Tatars are likely to follow. After the pro-forma referendum on March 16, 2014, or better to say, an outrageously fabricated political action aimed at justifying Russian annexation of Crimea, the only minorities facing a palpable threat are Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars. More than a week prior to the fake referendum, Crimean Tatars, the Crimea's indigenous people who strongly support Ukraine's territorial integrity, issued a plea for an intervention by the United Nations. Ivan Simonovich, UN Assistant Secretary General for Human Rights, reported just a couple of days before fake referendum that there were already many Crimean Tatars, Ukrainians and even Russians leaving the Crimean Peninsula and becoming displaced people. Putin's KGB training means that his main concern will always rest with power politics, not the real well-being of his own countrymen and certainly not of those in the neighboring states. Has Russia brought growth to Transnistria, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, Nagorno-Karabakh? The message of Russia's foreign policy is loud and clear, assertion of its superiority in what it treats as its backyard. Relationship with Russia is never a mutually beneficial one. Decisions are never collegiate. Putin and his ruling elite want the near abroad to be subservient. The Collective Security Treaty Organization and Customs Union are designed with this purpose in mind to bring about Kremlin's military and economic domination over the post-Soviet space. The key difference with the Soviet Union is that Russia will not be responsible for any of the damage to the societies in the nominally independent countries that are going to get trapped in these 
structures. Weak Ukraine gives some sort of glory to Putin's accomplishments in Russia. It serves as a negative model for comparison to his Russia. Putin believes that by making Ukraine smaller, Russia looks greater. Deteriorating Ukraine justifies Putin's management style and Russia's need for a powerful, authoritarian and an iconic statesman. But during Putin's 15 years in office, has modern Russia really achieved progress? Is it any less a kleptocracy than the Soviet Union? Is its population much wealthier or healthier? Russia's population, in fact, has dropped from 148.9 million in 1993 to 142.6 million in 2013. True, people in Russia live somewhat better relatively to the 90s after the breakup of the Soviet Union. But this modest improvement is abominable when considering the lost opportunity, the degree of the living standard that normal Russians, not the yesterday's communist and Czechist elite, could have had by now. Kremlin is more interested in keeping the masses sated just enough to keep them silent and obedient, allowing Putin's clique to continue their astronomical self-enrichment. Today, this complacent clique is severing Russia's ties with its formerly friendly neighbors and wrecking relations with the Euro area, which, according to the World Bank, is Russia's most important economic partner. The costs to Putin's conquest of Crimea are many, although so far they don't seem to deter the new Russian Tsar. What could be some of the benefits, then, for Putin to draw from the creation of an independent Republic of Crimea? For some part of the Russian population, the situation in Crimea will divert their attention from domestic problems and dark economic prospects back at home. In Russia, this issue will occupy most headlines and stay in the top for a couple of years. For some Russians, Mr. Putin will appear as a national hero. A major avenue or square, perhaps, in Crimea will be named in Putin's honor to celebrate Crimea's reunification with its historic motherland. Crimea will serve as a military reality show to engross Putin's electorate. Unfortunately, for those living in Crimea, it will be a horror movie, a catastrophic reality. Kremlin can expand the ruble zone and add another 1 or 2 million people to its population. Crimea's gas and other raw materials and mineral resources will go to Russian companies. Crimean population can become a source of cheap labor force to build dachas around Moscow, while new Russians will purchase the rest of the seashore in Crimea to build their fourth and fifth villas. Certain dictatorships around the world, such as Syria, Iran, and North Korea, will admire Russia for challenging the West. They could form some kind of an evil alliance to fight against the hegemony of the United States. Putin will probably try to offer incentives for the Crimean population to resettle to the Russia's Far East or to Siberia to counteract the demographic and economic influence from China there. Russia might be able to build up forces and even set up missile defense systems in the satellite regions to counterbalance the U.S. missile defense plans. 
Russia has already become uncontrollably dangerous. Since December 2007, Russia has suspended the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, disallowing data exchanges and inspections. Does the world really know the extent of Russian weaponry? After the Anschluss of Crimea, Putin can continue to exert destabilizing pressure on Ukraine through the pro-Russian groups located in Ukraine and the Ukrainian communists in order to impose federalization and neutrality on Ukraine. If this project succeeds, then Ukraine's integration as a whole into Western institutions will be impossible. Has Mr. Putin really lost it? Putin's Crimean affair promises to have a debilitating influence on the international system and Russia itself. Swallowing parts of Ukraine through unprovoked aggression and questionable pretext will surely create more temptation for other authoritarian states to act in similar ways, including against Russia. That is why the Crimean crisis cannot and should not go unanswered. Sovereign guarantees of territorial integrity and inviolability of borders can truly degenerate in their meaning. Russia, a multi-ethnic and multi-confessional state, has put Russian ethnic nationalism at the core of its foreign policy, which leaves many states vulnerable to the same interventionist arguments that we are now seeing at play in Ukraine. The secession of Crimea from Ukraine that is being orchestrated by Russia and its unidentified armed men is a direct analogy to Hitler's Anschluss of Austria in 1938, which also involved a referendum. It is ironic that just like Hitler in 1936, Mr. Putin embarked upon the annexation of another state after hosting the 2014 Olympic Games. Hopefully, Putin will remember that the important thing is not to win, but to take part. It seems that Ukraine, long considered by some analysts as a centerpiece to completing modern-day Russian empire, is in reality becoming a key to the unraveling of Putin's regime, or at least to an irreversible disillusionment with Putin's foreign policy goals. Vladimir Valkov in Lviv, Ukraine.
The Whalers with a special version of Get Up, Stand Up. That was called Maidan Light in support of freedom fighters in Ukraine. And uh, that was released back in February of 2014. And since then, the world's eyes have been on Ukraine as Ukrainians rebelled against rising authoritarianism in their own country and were met in return with a Russian invasion of Ukraine's southern and eastern provinces. Yale University's Timothy Snyder is the world's leading historian of Eastern Europe. His series of articles in the New York Review of Books has been hailed as the definitive analysis of this crisis. 
The following is part of a presentation by Timothy Snyder, which he gave on November 9th, 2014, as part of the 25th anniversary Chicago Humanities Festival Journeys. The title is Ukraine from Propaganda to Reality. An example of of this of postmodernism is um is marketing, politics as marketing, right, which we're all familiar with. So the two kinds of Russian propaganda, which I've already mentioned, each has a market. Um, when, when the Russians say it's all, the, the Ukrainian revolution is all a geopolitical struggle, their market is the European left and parts of the American left who really do kind of tend to think that America's behind everything. And therefore, if it's a geopolitical struggle, then maybe we should be against America rather than Russia. And most insidiously, if it's a geopolitical struggle, that just removes all of the Ukrainians from the picture entirely, right? If it's all about some chessboard between America and Russia, you know, where it's just guys in ties in the Kremlin, you know, or in the Pentagon thinking about things, then there are no real Ukrainians. There are no real human beings. There are no people who suffer. There are no, there's no one who takes risks. There's no one who votes in higher numbers than we do, right? There's no one fighting a war, even though they have no army. The people are evacuated from the scene completely in this geopolitical struggle. That's the market. It reaches us that way. Likewise, the idea which they started out with, that the Ukrainians are all fascists, um, that had a market. Right? The market was all of us who were concerned that um, the greatest danger comes from a renewal of fascism or from anti-Semitism. If you just say your enemy is a Nazi and a fascist over and over and over again, which some of them still do. I mean, the, prime, the deputy prime minister of Russia, who himself is uh, <laughs> no friend of the left, um, uh, actually had his party banned because of you know, r- racist advertisings in an earlier better era in Russian history. Um, he refers to the Ukrainians still as the, what is it, the fascist Nazi junta fascist Nazi junta. And someone has taught him that every time he refers to them, instead of saying Ukraine, he should say fascist Nazi junta. And if you say it over and over again, people might start to think it's plausible. If you say it enough times, it starts to sound ridiculous, right? Nazi fascist junta, Nazi fascist junta, Nazi fascist junta, Nazi fascist junta, Nazi fascist junta. But um, but clearly he's aiming for a market. And the, and, and the point about all this is that it, 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 it works. You may not be convinced in the end, but it slows you down. It certainly slows you down at the very minimum. Um, It it creates a slippery world. Let me give you the third example of postmodernism, which we do, okay, which Fox News does, and this is where it came from, actually, and they've perfected it. There's a Russian television broadcaster called Russian Today, Russia Today, which is, I think, the second largest English language broadcaster now in the world. And the way they present news, and this will be familiar, is they bring on five experts, experts, each of whom present five different variety versions of what happened. One of which might even be true, right? Um, but it doesn't matter because when you hear the five different versions, at the end of it, A, you have no idea what actually happened. B, the event itself has been trivialized by this ridiculous discussion. And C, you've maybe lost a little bit more of whatever faith you might have had in journalism, right? And that is intentional, okay? So when Russia Today or other Russian media outlets discuss, for example, the shooting down of the Malaysian airline flight over Ukraine, which was a real event, in which 289 real people lost their lives. But the theories are thrown out about it, like this Malaysian airliner was the same one that disappeared over the Pacific, or this Malaysian airliner was launched from its runway with dead bodies who were put in there by the CIA, or this Ukrainian airliner was actually shot down by a Ukrainian fighter jet or maybe an American fighter jet, or this Ukrainian, this Malaysian airliner was, was shot down by Ukrainian artillery, which is actually aiming for President Putin's plane. If you put enough of this stuff out there, right, then people might, you're, I've probably just done it. You're going to go home and say, you know, do you know the strangest thing? You know, <laughs> I just heard Professor Snyder say that UFOs carrying Elvis's baby shot down that plane, right? <laughs> um, 
and, and, and this is how it works, right? That you, you give these multiple views, and at the end, something which really matters, right? The, the tragic death of, of children and women and men, something which really matters, at the end of it, it becomes nothing. And, and, then, and, and you don't really believe in journalism anymore, and that's what's intended. That's the final way this postmodern stuff works. Now, the, the, I, 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 I'm already sort of testing you to see how deep this has gotten into us, and of course it, it, does, it comes from us in some considerable measure, and I'm getting back towards our title, which is From Propaganda to Reality, where the question is where are we really in all of this, and how much of this comes from us and how much of it reaches us. Now, the, the, where this ultimately heads, I think, is in, in, to, to the dispensation, um, the, the dispensing of truth itself, or dispensing, the dispensing of truth itself, that there is no such thing of truth. Truth has been dispensed with. Um, and if you no longer believe in it, right, if you no longer believe in it, it's no longer there. And the hardest test of this would be the old Aristotelian test of, I'm in Chicago, I always like to say Aristotle when I'm in Chicago. Um, the old Aristotelian, there's like, there's one University of Chicago graduate here who laughed at that. <laughs> um, there's the, the old Aristotelian test of non-contradiction. So, you might think, no, that's ridiculous, Professor Schneider. Of course, we, we follow the principle of non-contradiction. We don't allow ourselves to contradict ourselves on a daily basis. And if somebody else did, we'd catch it immediately. Okay, so let's see. Let's see. Let me recite some things from Russian propaganda about this war, which you have, will have all heard probably in one way or another because the American media happily picks up most of this stuff. Let me just cite a couple of things, and then let's see how, we, how we've been doing. Um, you, have heard, uh, you have heard there's no Ukrainian state. You've also heard the Ukrainian state is very repressive. You have heard there is no Ukrainian nation. You've also heard that all Ukrainians are nationalists. You have heard that there is no Ukrainian language. You've also heard that Russians are being forced to speak the Ukrainian language. Um, most, most disturbingly, you have heard that Russia is fighting a war to save the world from fascism. And you've also heard that maybe fascism isn't such a bad thing after all. Honestly, how much of that did you pick up? How much of the fact that the entire propaganda campaign from beginning to end was not just wrong, but self-contradictory? Honestly, how much of that was clear to all of us at the time? I think surprisingly and depressingly little. And, and this is the place where I want to try to bring this to an end. Um, we are at a point where I really think we are at a point of to be or not to be uh, for the West, whatever you might think of as the West. This policy of strategic relativism, of bringing down the various kinds of connections that exist, the transatlantic one, the European one, the, the integrity of states themselves, civil society, uh, is ultimately about us as well. The policies against civil society, interestingly, are not just being pursued on the Maidan or in Russia, where NGOs are banned or are forced to advertise themselves as being foreign agents. They're also pursued here. Um, Russian money is used to fund non-governmental organizations here, and then the Russians reveal that they're doing this, and then we all become skeptical about non-governmental organizations in general, right? Um, or journalists are paid to admit that they were working for the CIA and, by Russian money, and then we then we become a little more skeptical about journalism. This all of this is not just about Ukraine; it's about it's about something much, much, much bigger. And in that sense, I think it's best understood as a challenge. So we can say. 
you know, what might sensible policy be? And I think there are answers to that, what sensible policy should be. You know, these, if we really believe in these unities, if we believe in civil society or the integrity of states, uh, or if we believe in European integration, or if we believe in the transatlantic relationship, it's probably a good time to say so, probably a good time to try to support those things. Um, th there are sensible policies. I think the, the best Russia policy is a good Ukraine policy, the thing that the United States government should be doing in addition to sanctions against Russia, which are important because they force a conversation in Russia eventually, is to support the Ukrainian state as an example. Um, if the Ukrainian state holds together, that's the best rebuff to this kind of policy. But, but fundamentally, I mean, and I can talk more about that, but, but fundamentally this is about concepts. I think fundamentally this is a kind of Orwellian moment. This is a moment where we decide whether we have concepts, whether we know who we really are. Um, because the, let me put it a different way. I described all this as tactics, the asymmetry, strategy, the relativism, and then philosophy, the postmodernism. But really, the philosophy is also the tactics. The philosophy comes first. If you buy into this version of postmodernism, um, then you are going to also buy into the strategic relativism, and then you're going to lose a whole lot of asymmetric battles which is a description of what has happened in the last year in large measure, not a description of Ukraine and Russia. The Ukrainians are actually much more savvy about these things than we are, of course, um, because having had much more experience with them. Um, it's not a description of Ukraine and Russia. It's a description of us. It's a description of us. If we buy into this kind of way of seeing the world, which is in part our way of seeing the world, we, we, we had a good hand in generating it, um, then there are certain consequences, like that there will be wars, there will be broken orders, um, there, 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 there will be chaos. So um, I think really that's, that's, that's where we come to, 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 to an end here. Um, the, the title uh, from, from Propaganda to Reality is, is not about Ukraine. You know, you, you can talk about Ukraine without talking about propaganda and, and, and reality. From a Ukrainian point of view, the things that have happened are actually fairly straightforward. And the things, the way that we describe it from the outside can also be fairly straightforward. An authoritarian, an authoritarian state has invaded a democratic state, uh, destroying a European order. It's really not that complicated. It's happened that way. Um, the reasons why we find it complicated are largely reasons which have to do with us, with our vulnerability to certain kinds of propaganda, and not, and not really with reality. So ultimately, I see all this as a challenge. I mean, if you want to be optimistic, an interesting challenge, but I think a, a serious moral and intellectual challenge in which the people who come up with these ideas know us much better than we know them. Um, these, are, these are serious, intelligent people who have to be taken seriously, which we're not, I think, at the moment doing very well. And what concerns me is the extent to which this event in Ukraine, which is important in all kinds of ways, um, has given way precisely to um, this yielding moment in our, own, in our own culture. Because after all, if we see what's happened in Ukraine as nothing more than just some little conflict in some faraway country, if we see this as just a kind of politics as usual, um, well then, Propaganda has already won, and reality has already lost, and the story is already over. Thank you. Yale University's Timothy Snyder, the world's leading historian of Eastern Europe. And that is from a presentation he made on November 9th, 2014, as part of the 25th anniversary Chicago Humanities Festival called Journeys. And that was entitled Ukraine from Propaganda to Reality.
from Winnipeg, that was the female beat from their third CD, Sealed with a Kiss and Mayday Retreat. Nume vjeskinčela naše programu vjeskinčela domu vjeskazate do pobačenja, ali peritem ja hoću zalešiti vas tijekim slobami mudrostja. Nikto z nas ne znaje, kole joho polovena viku menaje. And our proverb of the leak translates as no one knows when he has reached the midpoint of his life. Guess that's true. Well, our time is just about up, so to take us to the end of our program, one last toe-tapper by the Ukrainian connection from Saskatchewan and the Kolomeka. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Nasholus Ukrainian Roots Radio here on CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Please join Oksana and me next Wednesday at 11 o'clock for two hours of great Ukrainian programming. Meanwhile, you can stay in touch with us online. Follow Oksana and me on Facebook and Twitter as well. Like our Facebook page and check out the Nasholus website where you can get the podcasts, a link to our blog and other information about the show. And that is www.nasholus.com. Stay tuned next for World Beat Canada with Vancouver's Cal Coat, followed by Jukebox Oldies with our own Bobby B. Cool. So on behalf of all of us here at Nosh Hollis and CHLY 101.7 FM, I'm Pavlina. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, Dopobachinya.
Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.